Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church. Really, really glad you are here, whether you are here and I can see you in the room or you're joining us online. We're just glad that you're here and you've joined us and we are here to worship God. I don't know about you, uh, but I'm going to just pause for a moment and I want to just pray because I think that the message that we're going to get into today could be difficult because of the topic and so I just uh, feel like probably it's good for me, but I think it's good for us to just pause and ask God to, uh, to do what he does and help us as we get into this, all right? So would you join me in prayer? God, uh, thank you for being here with us. May your voice, your presence, and your spirit speak clearly, powerfully, and may we realize when we hear it that you speak truth in love and that whatever you have for us, it's going to be good because it's from you. We pray this and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, again, thank you for being here. So we are in a series right now, a seven-week series called Puzzled by the Bible. The reason we're calling it that is really two reasons. Uh, one is sometimes we approach the Bible, this book, like it's a puzzle. We know bits and pieces. We can quote a verse or we've heard a few stories, but we don't realize that it's one big puzzle. It's a huge picture that God is trying to portray, to paint. One big story that he's trying to tell. But sometimes we just know bits and pieces kind of like puzzle pieces. The other reason we call it puzzled by the Bible is because, let's be honest, the Bible is puzzling. Right? It is hard sometimes to understand, and, 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 and I got this question by somebody actually from Northridge just this last week, after last week's message, and she wrote in, she said, so if I were going to start reading the Bible, where in the world would I begin? I have no idea. Do I just open it up and start going? Eh, you could do that. But where do we start? It's puzzling. It's sometimes hard to understand where to begin, how to understand it, what it's trying to say, how it's trying to say it. And so this series is all about unpacking the one big story of the Bible. What is God trying to say throughout from cover to cover? What is he trying to communicate? All right. So before we get too deep into this, a couple of things. One, I want to remind everybody that this series originally came from a guy named Pastor Kevin Myers at a church called Twelve Stone Church. They gave this series like 10 years ago. It's been kind of in the hopper, so to speak, that we've been thinking about. I've been praying about this for a very long time and felt like this was the right time to bring this up and bring this out. There's a lot of intensity in this series. And so this we kind of felt like was a good time for that. The second thing that I want to do is I want to review what we've been talking about because we need to know where we are in order to know where we're going, all right? So let me review what we've covered for the last three weeks, and what I'm about to do is way too fast, and so if you want the more detailed version of what I'm about to do to you, like literally fire hose it at you, uh, if you want the more detailed version, go three weeks back to where Pastor Chris actually delivers the message on the one big story of the Bible, and you'll get a little bit more detailed version of what I'm about to do, okay? So let's do the quick review overview. So the Bible is made up of two main parts. The first part is the Old Testament. 
You could also say old covenant or old promise or old contract. A contract between God and Abraham, God and people, called the Old Testament. Then everything centers on Jesus, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And we go to the New Testament, which is the new promise, the new covenant, the new contract between God and people because of Jesus. Now, these, each of these two sections have five events in them. The Old Testament has five events. The New Testament has five events. The Old Testament five events lead up to Jesus. The five events in the New Testament lead as a result of Jesus and out of Jesus. So let's go through those five events. So the first event in the Old Testament. The first event is God and righteous people in paradise. God creates a perfect world and then places a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, in this perfect world. God and righteous people in paradise. It's how God intended life to be. But then the second event messed it up. Satan and sin enter. Satan comes in, tempts Adam and Eve, they fall into sin, and the perfect world is messed up. And so we have this Satan and sin problem. Third event, the world is judged and destroyed. It gets so bad that God decides he needs to destroy the world with a global flood, which he does. And the only people that survive are Noah and his family. That's the Noah and the ark story. We usually tell it in a fun kid's fashion, but it's really a, a pretty rough day. Okay? Noah and his family survive, and then that leads us to the fourth event, which is a one-world government. This is where the people try to become God, and because of that, God scatters them all over the earth. And that leads us to the fifth and final event. It's still in the very first book of the Old Testament. But then the rest of the Old Testament is about it. The Old Covenant is established between God and Abraham. This will lead to the next promises, which is the nation of Israel is established. The 12 tribes of Israel is established. The promised land is given. That's the rest of the Old Testament is the Old Covenant is established with the people of Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. And then we arrive at the pinnacle, the key, the hinge point to the one big story, and that is Jesus. Jesus is God's answer, God's solution for the Satan sin problem. All you have to do is accept Jesus and be forgiven for sin. It's the whole key point of the one big story. And then that leads us into the next five events, which perfectly parallel, they perfectly parallel with the first five events in the Old Testament. So the first event in the New Testament is the new covenant. The new covenant is established because of Jesus. It's the new promise between God and people. If you believe in Jesus, you will be forgiven for your sin. It's the new covenant, the new promise. And then that leads us to the next four events, and these next four events have not happened yet. These are things that God promises will happen in the future. We have not seen them come to, to fruition yet, but they will happen according to God and his word. Okay, so the next event is, same as the first one in the Old Testament, or same as the fourth one in the Old Testament, a one world government again. We are headed toward a day where the world will try to set up a one world government. A few generations ago, we would, I would have laughed off the stage. Yeah, that's hilarious. Now, not so hard to believe, is it? With the control that our world desires to have and the power, this is not too crazy to think about. 
We're headed toward a one-world government. Now, before I go on, as we always say, if you're in Disney, a big Disneyland park and, and you're trying to figure out where you're going, the roller coaster that you're trying to find, you need to first know where you are, right? And so you look at the map and it says, you are here. So let me show you where you are. You are here. We are after Jesus, but before the one-world government. We've been there for 2,000 years, by the way. We might be there for 2,000 more, 4,000 more. We might be there until, I don't know, next week. We don't know. Nobody knows. But we do know that that's the time period we're in until one world government is established. Okay? All right, next event. Satan, uh, or the world is judged and destroyed. Now, the first time was by flood. The second time is going to be by fire. We don't know exactly what that means. We just know it's by fire. Again, that's going to be kind of a hard day. And then the fourth event is a good day. Satan and sin exit for good. This is, the Bible literally says, God will kick Satan and sin into hell. I'm going to read, actually, that verse here in a minute. Okay, I'm going to prove that to you in a minute. I'm going to read from the last book of the Bible. And then the final one, it leads us into the final event, which is God and redeemed people. They're not righteous. They were righteous. Sin brought them out of righteousness. And then because of Jesus, they are redeemed. So God and redeemed people in paradise forever. All right, so this is the one big story, the one big overview of the Bible. This is the story that God is telling from cover to cover in his word in the Bible. This is the story that he's telling. This is what he wants us to understand. Now, what I want to do today is I want to talk about the three impossibilities according to God and the Bible. Three things that are impossible according to God. Now, right away you might say, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure I've read the Bible, and I'm pretty sure that God himself has said all things are possible with God, or nothing is impossible with God. You say, I've heard that. I've heard that too. Let me just tell you that because God said nothing is impossible with God is the reason these three impossibilities exist. Let's get into it. Number one, the first impossibility, according to God, is this. It is impossible for Satan to be made holy. Think about it. This is not something, I'm sure you probably don't sit there and dwell on Satan all day long, right? That's probably a good thing, right? So we don't think about this, this possibility, this impossibility, but the, it is impossible for Satan to be made holy. Now, the first thing that maybe some of you are thinking is, where did Satan come from in the first place anyway? Right? Because I'd really like to know why this world is so messed up, and Satan did it, and so I'd like to know where he came from. Well, uh, you're not going to like the answer. Some of you didn't know this, but God created him. Yeah, God created him. He didn't create him as Satan, obviously, because God can't do that. That's a hint toward the next impossibility that we're going to get to. But God created Satan as a beautiful, powerful angel. Satan did not like being subservient to God, and so he rebelled against God, and he took a whole third of the angels with him. They got kicked out of heaven, and they became Satan and the demons. This is all biblical, right? You can look this up in a lot of different scripture passages in the Bible. It will tell you all these things. 
God creates Satan as this powerful, beautiful angel. Satan rebels against God. He takes a one-third of the angels with him, and that becomes Satan and the demons. Now, the reason we know that Satan cannot be made holy is because God says that there, there is literally nothing in God's word that says Satan has the possibility of being redeemed. There's nowhere in Scripture that you can point to that says Satan can possibly be redeemed. He can't because there's no promise in here about that. In fact, let me read for you. Remember that fourth event in the Old Testament, Satan and sin exit? I want to read for you why we know that that's going to happen. We have to go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Listen to what it says about that day when Satan and sin exit. Then the devil, Satan, who had deceived them, that's us, people, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever. It is not quite often that we come face to face with hell. This is why a lot of people, I'm just going to be honest with you, this is why a lot of people stay away from church because of messages like what I'm going to deliver today. Because I don't know about you, but how many of you love getting out of bed and hearing about the end of the days and, and about a lake of burning sulfur where people are, you know, Satan is tormented forever? Yes, I want to get out of bed for that one. I'm going to set my alarm earlier for that one. This is going to be great. I've actually had a lot of people say, well, the reason I don't go to church is because, you know, at church they talk about sin. Yep. You're right. We do because it's a problem. <laughs> no, I'm serious. This is, this is a conversation I have fairly regularly because they find out I'm a pastor and they're like, oh, oh. They either run for the hills or they lean in and they're like, ooh, I've got questions. Right? Satan and sin, there's a day when they will exit and they will be tormented day and night forever. It's not a happy thought. It's not a good thought, but it's a reality. That is Satan's destiny. Now, here's why it's a big deal. I want to go jump down four more verses later. Same chapter, Revelation chapter 20, and it tells us what happens to the people who choose Satan. This is where it gets real. Verse 14, then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. That's a good thing. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life, in other words, who follows Jesus, was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, anybody who follows Satan has the same destiny as Satan. You understand? This is a very serious thing, and I feel like it's really important to pause in this moment and ask you the most important question I will ever ask any person on this planet, and that question is, who are you following? Who are you following? And just so that we're clear, because God is really clear, if you're not following God, by default, you're following Satan. There's no middle ground. You can't say, well, I'm just trying to do the best, you know, I'm just trying to be good. 
Well, you know who you're following? You're following you. You're following you. You're not Jesus. You're not God. By the way, I've seen that this is a little bit of a heresy in the church. I hope you're not following me. I'm not Jesus either. Most of you know that quite well. <laughs> My wife knows that quite well. I'm not God. If you're not following God, by default, you're following Satan. And the destiny is the same for anybody who follows Satan. Now, if you're sitting here kind of feeling a little uncomfortable and maybe even a little offended, don't get offended at my words. I am simply saying what God is saying in the Bible. Really, you, you saw what I just read. I didn't make up those words. This is God saying these things. And so the question is, who are you following? Now, the first thing that we need to understand is it is impossible for Satan to be made holy. We cannot redeem Satan. God will not redeem Satan. It cannot be done. It is impossible. Satan chose his path. He's sticking with that path. It's not going to change. That's what God is trying to tell us in his word. So it is impossible for Satan to be made unholy. Now, that leads us to the second impossibility, which is also really important, and it is linked to the first one. And you guys probably can figure out where this next one's going. It is impossible for God to be made unholy. You cannot have God do anything less than perfection in holiness. Let me read for you what it says in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews 6.18. It says, so God has given both his promise and his oath. Remember the promises, the Old Testament, the Old and the New Testament? Promise, covenant, contract. That's what it's talking about. God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable. Because it is impossible for God to lie. I don't know about you, but that's a good thing. Even if God wanted to be unholy, even if he tried to choose to be sinful, he can't because he's perfectly holy. He cannot choose to be unholy because he's perfectly holy. Right? Wrap your brain around that. Do you get dizzy? Me too. Right? It's kind of like thinking of eternity. Both directions, by the way. God, just think about this. God didn't begin. He never had a start. He also doesn't have an end. That's a little bit easier to understand, but he didn't have a beginning. I don't know about you, but my brain does not quite comprehend that. Like, everything has to start somewhere. Nope, God didn't start somewhere. He always is. And he always will be. God also cannot be made unholy. God is... Understand that God, holy is not something that God does. Holy is something that God is. He is holy. It's who he is. God isn't holy because he does holy things. God does holy things because he's holy. Right? So it is impossible for God to be made unholy. Now, this leads us very quickly to the third one. And you can probably tell, man, I'm on the third one and it is still early. You guys are like counting your, like, I'm going to get to go to breakfast. <laughs> it's still me, guys. I'm still here. There's no way I'm going to finish that early ever, <laughs> probably. We're going to spend some time on this third one, and when I tell you it, you're going to understand because we're going to have to unpack this one for a little bit. 
All right? The third impossibility is it is impossible to be made holy without the shedding of blood. Remember one of the main things that we learned on the first sermon that Pastor Chris gave in this series. That sin leads to what? Leads to death. The penalty for sin is death. It's the shedding of blood. That's the penalty for sin. There cannot be any other penalty. We can't change the penalty. The penalty for sin is death. Now let me read for you what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It actually tells us that this, this whole forgiveness of sin thing, it is impossible apart from the shedding of blood. Listen to what uh, the writer of Hebrews says. It says, in fact, or in other words, this is truth. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So I want to pause here for a moment. I want to spend some time on this. This is something that most churches probably, uh, typically we just don't talk about. But I want to talk about the sacrifice system that God put in place because of this reality. That it is impossible to have forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, without something or someone dying. It's impossible to have forgiveness without that. So let's talk about this. So let's go all the way back to when Moses frees the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Okay, you remember that story? Moses, because of God's direction in his life, goes back to Egypt, frees the Israelites, brings the Israelites, the entire Israelite nation, probably about a million people, into the desert wilderness. Now, now that they're free, they are not controlled by the Egyptians anymore. Now God has to set in place a system, a way, for the Israelite people to be forgiven of their sins. Jesus has, is a long time from, from arriving on the scene. Okay? This is thousands of years before Jesus is going to arrive. And so God has to put in place a system, a way, a path for all people to be forgiven of their sin. The problem is that the penalty of sin is death. You cannot forgive sin without shedding blood. All right, so how is God going to do that? Well, God set up a system. So let's fast forward. They're in the wilderness, the entire nation of Israel, 12 tribes, right? We have the 12 tribes of Israel. They're all in the desert wilderness together, and so they're all camping out together. It was not winter camping, Ryan, all right? This, we're talking more hot, okay? Not, not cold, not like zero degrees. By the way, that, you guys are nuts, so very good. Just want you to know. Just, just saying truth here this morning, all right? <clears throat> no, it's awesome. I went last year. I just couldn't go this year. It's all good. Moses is leading the Israelites, but God gives Moses this system. And the first thing that God says to Moses is, you need to set apart a section of the camp that is going to be holy. <clears throat> in other words, it's not, it's not going to be a tent from a certain family. It's, not going to be, it's going to be set apart. We're going to make a rectangular area, and it's going to be set apart. This is going to be holy ground. You know what that was called? It was called the tabernacle. 
And I actually have an image of what this may have looked like. Let's kind of bring that up. This is kind of what it looked like. You had the tabernacle. You kind of see the thing in the center. And then you have the stuff that we're going to talk about outside the tabernacle. And then you had that white kind of linen fence around the edge. And it separated that from all of the rest of the camp. In fact, on all, three, on all four sides, you had three tribes of Israel on each side to the north, east, west, and the south. Hey, this is how it's laid up. Again, you can read all of this in the Old Testament. And so God set apart this area, and what happens is this. The system is basically this. So you see that kind of white linen fence out there. What a person would do is if a family or if a person needed to make atonement, they had to be forgiven of their sin, then what they would do is they would have to bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle area. Okay? Typically, this would have been an animal. Sometimes it would have been grain or, you know, a portion of their, the first fruits of their crop or something like that. But quite often, more often, it was an animal. Okay? And uh, so for, just as an example, let's say that a family needed to make uh, atonement or get forgiveness for their sins. So the family grabbed one of their precious little lambs. And they would take the lamb, they would make sure that the lamb was perfect, that there was no problem, you know, with the lamb, all kinds of stuff, without blemish. And they would bring the lamb to the entrance of that tabernacle area outside the curtain, the fence. And there would be a priest there, and the priest would examine the lamb, make sure that the lamb was out without defect. You can't bring a lamb that was going to die the next day anyway. That's not a sacrifice. You understand, right? Uh, well... This one on his last leg, so we'll bring this one. You understand that's not a sacrifice. It had to be a lamb without blemish, a lamb that meant something, an innocent lamb. There's no problem with this lamb, which is why this lamb needs to be sacrificed. And they would bring the lamb, the priest would examine the lamb, and then you would be allowed to enter into the uh, tabernacle area. Now, here's where I want to switch gears a little bit. We're going to put up a graphic and we're going to keep that up there for quite a long time. I want you to see this. So let's go to the next one. Inside the tabernacle area, this is what it looks like. Now we're inside the rectangular area, right? So the first thing that the, that the family would come to is the brazen or bronze altar. Okay? This is just what it looks like and sounds like. It's an altar where there's a fire going. Now, next to it would have been like a, a table of some kind. And what would have happened is the family, usually the head of the household, would confess the sins of himself or the family or all the people, and they would confess the sins onto the lamb. Because the lamb is about to become the sacrifice for their sin. God doesn't want to kill the people, but something still has to die. Again, some of us are uncomfortable with it, I know. But I'm just telling you, this is what the system is that God set up. And so they would take that lamb, this lamb that the family had raised, and they would slit its throat and empty its blood. And then once the lamb had been sacrificed, had died, they would place the lamb in the altar and the lamb would be consumed by the fire. Now, some of us might be sitting here and say, this is pretty brutal. Let me just tell you this. I'm not, I can't get into this today, otherwise we would be here way past lunch, okay? But I will tell you I will get into this next week. 
Let me tell you that this is way less brutal than the alternative. I will get into that next week. So if you're thinking it's brutal, let me just tell you it's not. Even though we don't like it, it's uncomfortable, it's not brutal. And there's a reason why. I'll tell you next week. But they go in there, they kill the lamb, they sacrifice the lamb, then the, the lamb is burned, consumed in the altar, and then that is as far as anybody could go. At this point, only the priest can proceed. And so at this point, their, their sins are atoned for, so they, they leave, they go back out. The next thing that happens is the priest will go to the bronze laver. Okay? This is, think of this as like a big bronze bowl with water in it. Okay? That's what it was. It was this giant bowl with water in it. And they would go there, and this was for them to physically and ceremonially wash their hands and feet to make sure that they were prepared properly, purified, in order to enter into the next place, which is the actual tabernacle, to be near God's presence. You do not, in other words, can you tell, like, this is a serious thing? This is like, if you're going to be near to the presence of God, you better prepare yourself. Because God is holy. And by the way, the whole lamb thing, do you know why? It would have been pretty powerful when that lamb was killed. Here's why. And we don't like to think about it this way, but this is why it would have been powerful. It would have been a very clear reminder to every person who had to pay for their sin that the penalty of sin is disastrous. This poor lamb paid with its life because of my sin. It's sobering, isn't it? It tells you this sin thing is serious. God is serious. And it reminds you on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, when you have to make a sacrifice, when something has to die in your place for your sin. It was a very stark reminder of the penalty of sin. And so the priest prepares himself, and then he enters into the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, as you can see on the diagram, has two main parts. It has the holy place, and it has the most holy place, also called the holy of holies. Okay, the holy place and the most holy place. In the holy place, you have these three main elements. You have the table of showbread on the one side. This is a table that was overlaid with gold and it had 12 loaves of bread on it, signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. And it reminded the people of the provision that God provided for them. Uh, next to that, you had the lampstand. This is the only light that was given off in the tabernacle area. And this was obviously kept up, and the oil and all this stuff was very strictly prescribed by God, and the priest would take care of that flame. And then the third element in there is the altar of incense, and this is where they would literally burn incense. And again, there was a very strict prescription as to how much and how the fire could be built. You can't just come in there with, you know, click, 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 lighter. They didn't have those, by the way. But you couldn't come in and just have a man-made fire. You had to take the fire from the altar because the fire had to be holy. And they would burn incense, and the burning incense would rise as smoke as prayers to God. That was the point, to remind the people that your prayers go up to God. And then the priest 
had that second section. Now, no priest could go into that last section. Only one priest could go in there once a year. And, and only after he had done a whole lot of things to make sure he was prepared for that. Because if you entered in, according to God, if you entered into his presence without being properly prepared, you would not survive it. Because his holiness is so great and powerful. And in that most holy place is something that we've heard about a lot. <clears throat> it's called the Ark of the Covenant. I'll bet you guys have heard about that, because that's kind of the, of, of a lot of the Old Testament stuff, like that's one of the famous things, right? That's what we hear a lot about. Uh, if you've ever seen any of the Indiana Jones movies, you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, I would venture to say that most of what most of us in here know about the Ark of the Covenant came from Hollywood when they made that movie, like whatever it was, 40 years ago with Harrison Ford, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Right? In fact, I bring that up on purpose because here's what I want to do. This is very interesting, but Hollywood actually did their homework on that movie because when they pulled out the script, they actually went to the biblical text and they pulled things out that were truly said in the Bible and they do a fairly decent job of describing what the Bible says about the Ark of the Covenant. You guys want to see it? I bet you do. Movie in church? For sure. Take a look. Here's a clip of them describing the Ark of the What does that mean to you, uh, Tannis? Well, oh, the city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you what mean, do you mean Commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Did you guys ever go to Sunday school? Well, I... Oh, look. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the Ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon. In Jerusalem. Where it stayed for many years until all of a sudden whoosh is gone where well nobody knows where or when however an egyptian pharaoh Shishak. yes invaded the city of jerusalem around about 980 bc and he may have taken the ark back to the city of tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the well of souls where the ark of the covenant was kept right which is exactly what the nazis are looking for now, what does this ark look like there's a picture of it right here Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. Power of God or something. You're going to understand Hitler's interest in this. Thing. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. So you can kind of catch, at least Hollywood put the gravity of the Ark of the Covenant before people. They did a good job of that. By the way, if you see the end of that movie, you know they really do that. I decided not to show that scene. 
The point is this. The holiness of God is a very serious thing. It's a very important thing. Just like he said at the end there, no army, no person can stand against the presence of God. Understand, the Ark of the Covenant was not the power. It was the presence of God that was the power. And it leads us to the question that I asked a few minutes ago. An important question that we all need to consider that it's important for us to consider. If it's impossible for Satan to be made holy, if it's impossible for God to be made unholy, if it's impossible for us to have forgiveness of our sins without the shedding of blood, then what hope is there in this life? Well, thankfully, God has answered that question for you because it is very possible for you to receive forgiveness of sins because of Jesus. Now, I don't have time to get into all that either today. That's why this is kind of like a mini-series within the series. Next week, we're going to take, bring this to culmination. If you've wondered why Jesus died on a cross the way that he did, if you've wondered why God had to sacrifice himself to save us, all of this is going to come together and make a whole lot of sense when we connect the sacrifice system to the sacrifice of Jesus and see that it all lines up and it was one big story from the very beginning. It'll make a whole lot of sense. We're going to finish that story next week. Oh, and by the way, if you're interested in the whole revelation thing, we're going to finish that at the end of this series. There's a lot more to come. But let me leave you with this question, and it's very important. Who are you following? Are you following Jesus? Or are you following something or someone else? God's hope, God's prayer, God's desire is for you to receive forgiveness for your sin. The blood, here's the great news, guys. All of us, the blood has already been shed. The blood was already shed for you. The lamb already died in your place. All you have to do is accept it. Believe in it. The Bible's really clear. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, is the sacrifice, you will be saved. Who are you following? Will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, It is difficult for us as human beings to come face to face with the reality of sin. God, if I was going to be really, really honest this morning, this is not a sermon that I wanted to give because it was comfortable. It's just, it's not a comfortable thing to talk about. 
But at the same time, God, I know that this is so important because sin is so serious and you have solved the problem so perfectly, so well. You've made it as easy as possible for us. All we have to do is simply accept you, believe in you, put our hope and our trust in you. And so I pray for anybody in this space, whether they're in this room, whether they're watching or listening online right now, God, whoever it is, whoever is, is, is hearing this message and hearing your voice, God, if you are calling to them, if you are drawing them to give themselves to you, that, that you are calling them and saying, all you need to do is follow me. I pray that they would take that step, that they would take that plunge, that they would say the words, that they would uh, offer that prayer, that they would realize that the best thing, the greatest thing, the most important thing that, that anybody can ever do is to offer their life, is to give their life to you, Jesus, to follow you so that the promise that you've given to us, that we can spend eternity with you in your presence forever is possible. There are some things that are impossible, but forgiveness of sin has been made completely available and possible to every one of us. God, may you bring anybody who needs to follow you, Jesus, may you bring them to your feet. May they surrender to you right now. God, thank you for loving us so much that you gave everything. You shed your blood for me, for every person here. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We pray all this and we ask all of these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.